I'm doing um, an interview with Corden later. And um, oh, there we go. Just dropped off a jacket to wear on set. You're going to get the same look as Corden. <laughs> I, I feel I, I feel honored. James and Lou. There we go. And JP. I mean, there's, there's the look. There's in my feels. Love it. I want to welcome JP Sachs to the In My Feels podcast. Uh, JP Sachs is an incredible songwriter, producer, musician, songwriter, uh, Grammy uh, Award nominee now um, from Toronto. Um, incredible, incredible artist. So how we usually start the show is um, thoughts, feelings, emotions, uh, beliefs, negativity, positivity on the inside, create your outside exterior. So my question to you, JP, is how are you feeling right now in this moment? I just got a mix back of a song that I didn't like. So I'm going through the process of, um, okay, this I didn't like. Does that mean I don't like myself? No, no. It means I just didn't like this version of the song. Does that mean I don't like the song? Does that mean I don't like myself? No, no. You like yourself. You like the song. You just didn't like that version of the song. Okay. What didn't you like about that version of the song? How can it be fixed? That's where that's where you caught me. But you okay. caught me in the process because I wasn't able to go through that whole trajectory yet. So we're just we're we're in the middle of it. Okay. So we're trying we're just taking that productive anxiety, placing it aside and arriving to you, Lou, in this moment of honesty. Well, you know, you know what's funny is um I mean, that's obviously not funny, but in terms of <laughs> <laughs> like um so you know uh, I've been reading a ton of books on Buddhism which I touch up on a little bit on the show um and what you're describing there is creating stories around things that don't actually exist and let me give you a perfect example you're driving on a freeway um someone cuts you up you know, and you start swearing you know this person and then it's like well actually maybe that person's in a rush to go somewhere maybe their wife's about to give birth maybe they've had a you know a job loss maybe their whole situation is just completely messed up and you're creating this whole journey based around this one person. And I realized actually how much I do that in daily things like, you know, you just did. You brought in all these feelings and emotions, which, to be honest, is natural. You know, and I, I find that beautiful about you because I know you personally, too. So, yeah, I, I think um, one of the challenges of the, the, the mental health element of of being creative is separating your feelings about your art from your feelings about yourself, because those things can get real entangled in positive ways, but they can often also get entangled where being hypercritical of your art, because you have a very specific idea of what you would like your craft to be, can sometimes um, destructively seep into hypercriticism of oneself. And those things have to be separate. Like if you get to the end of a songwriting day and you wrote something you don't like, being able to separate the concept of I don't like that song or that was a bad song from I am a bad songwriter is, a, is, a ch is an important challenge to figure out your personal solution to. Yes, absolutely. But I, I always feel like you've been, that's something you've always been good at. I mean, I remember, I mean, how many years ago when we were sitting on my balcony, you were talking about, you know, a recent breakup, you were writing a ton of music about it. Uh, and I always felt then that you knew, you knew exactly who you were and what you wanted to do. And I think that was my uh, attraction to you in terms of, you know, you had a vision, you stuck with it, you knew exactly where you were going and what you were doing, and you would not compromise on that. Within reason, though, within, you know, 
how nice of a person you are. You know, for, for, for me, for people who don't know JP, always wears his heart on his sleeve. You know, his music relates to him 100%. He writes exactly how he feels. And that's why I feel like people, and that's, I mean, that's predominantly why you're successful because people can relate to that. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've, I've always just wanted my my art to feel as sincerely like the emotions I was writing them about as possible. Um, so until they do, I just feel very confident about not allowing them to exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there's a, I mean, there's beauty in that though. I feel like, you know, I, I used to fight emotions and feelings and, you know, all those type of things. Um, and it would make the situation worse instead of allowing it to flow through me and being like, well, I'm alive. I'm actually feeling these things. Um, and I think that's what makes, you know, in terms of manifestations, art is so special because they emote something so intense that their manifestations are, uh, or the attractions to the manifestations are even more intense, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it took me a long time to realize that the philosophies around the way I presented my art that I still hold true were actually different than the philosophies around the way I presented myself. Um, because, trying to craft the perfect or at least perfectly sincere, exactly representative in all the ways you wanted it to be version of your identity is a very, is a very stressful and unproductive approach to being a human, Mm -hmm. but a productive and meaningful approach to creating your art But for me, creating my art and creating myself used to feel like the same thing. And it's actually been a really healthy distinction for me in recognizing that not only are they different, but they're actually quite opposite. Um, Being myself and honest in how I present myself is allowed to be flawed and and honest in changing and fluid and, and, you know, being versus doing is a is a phrase I catch myself coming back to often. Um, whereas with my art, because it, it has to, it's a timestamp. It, it's concrete. It, it exists and then it lives in an unchanging way. That's a much more thoughtful process, a much more um, uncompromising process. Beautiful and a lot less anxiety inducing when I just let it happen. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, that's for me too, is, you know, I'm trying to be, as I say in this podcast before, the, 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 the kind of hollow bamboo on a river, that kind of, you know, trusting that because, because, you know, I mean, we talk about spiritual things on this show, you know, manifestations, thoughts and feelings become things. And I've almost become my own social experiment of the way I'm feeling at the time. And then seeing the attraction to that feeling and pinpointing exactly why I'm seeing what I'm seeing based on the way I feel. Sure. Um, I want to go, I want to dive into the kind of, if the world was ending, the kind of whole process of that, um, how long did it, because I'm trying to pinpoint what creates a hit. Is it the person's energy behind the song or is it the energy trapped in the song? I have absolutely no idea. Yeah. Um, But it also also could be the resistance to you, because, you know, you hear about artists, for example, Kelly Clarkson, since you've been gone, she hated that song and it became one of the biggest songs of her career. Now, that's not a manifestation of her hating the song, but maybe it was the energy trapped in the song that became the hit. 
So I'm trying to pinpoint, how, the, just to, just dive a little bit on the, the writing process of that. Did it come easily? Was it a struggle? Was it something as an afterthought? Um, I had written If the World Was Ending, You'd Come Over Right as a lyric for a different song. Um, and I didn't like it in that song. It didn't feel emotionally accurate in that other song. But I liked the idea, so I saved it. And then a year and a half later, an earthquake in Los Angeles, July 4th, 2019, reminds me of the lyric, uh, which just happened to be a couple of weeks before my session with Julia Michaels. So I decided to save the idea for Julia and uh, told her the idea. And we started talking about, you know, what it would take for your otherwise good reasons not to talk to the people you don't talk to, to seem irrelevant. Um, and in that moment of the earthquake, if everything was going to absolute shit, who would uh, who who would you want to be with? That on a regular non-apocalyptic day, you may uh, you may very intelligently decide to avoid. Um, and the song kind of just fell out of us. I mean, it was an extremely special session. There was a lot of a lot of energy in that session. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I mean, I. To your question, like what makes a what makes a hit a hit? I feel like the beauty of it is like you never really know. I mean, I would imagine that any future success I will have with big songs that don't exist yet, they will what they will have in common is that they are sincere. Um, other than that, they could be any number of things. What they're about, you know, the tempo they are, the instrumentation they are. I think they're just going to feel they're going to feel honest but beyond that I, I don't know what they will have in common yeah i feel like it, the, the stars aligned for that song and exactly what was going on at the time and the way the creative consciousness was feeling about everyone at the time too with this song um beautiful song and i feel like your your music's always had that resonance you know that that kind of that sound um which i love and it, you know um is, is was that the first time you you met julia yeah we wrote that song the day we met oh wow and you guys are obviously together now. Yeah, 19 months as of uh, as of yesterday. There we go. There we go. That's amazing. Um, and so in terms of, uh, obviously, you guys wrote that song. Um, how, how long before? So it was two years ago you wrote it? Almost two years. I mean, it'll be, well, we've, we've been dating for 19 months, which means we've, uh, we wrote the song 18 months and 21 days ago. Yeah. Uh, cause I, uh, I asked her to be my girlfriend in, in true high school fashion, uh, nine days after, after we wrote that song. That's amazing. Um, how did you do it? Because I mean, I always have these, uh, when I asked my wife first to be my girlfriend, it was kind of super cheesy. I was super nervous. Just, you know, the, the standard restaurant thing had this whole speech, which none of it came out properly. And it, it was almost like a schoolboy asking a, a, a woman to be, to be his girlfriend. <laughs> Uh, she was uh, she was in Nashville, so we were on FaceTime, and I uh, I think I said you should be my girlfriend. Oh, you did it digitally. There we go. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, we were just we were talking, and it just seemed like a it seemed like the wrong thing to to not say it at that point. It just it it seemed predetermined. I, I would have thought, assumed that that JP would have had this elaborate plan, this whole romantic gesture. But I think that I mean I love that about you. My my romance is off the cuff. It's not pre-planned. I think, <laughs> I think um I think prepared romance is a little bit overrated because if you think about it, all of that romantic energy is happening without the other person. Yep. Yep. 
to me, uh, to me, I'd rather I'd rather just have all the romance exist together and the figuring it out rather than um, you know three days of preparation that the other person doesn't even get to be a part of. Yep. But I say that as someone who used to think all of my romance had to be pre-prepared and the way to show up for another person lovingly was to be the perfect version of yourself by the time you arrived to them. Um, where I have I have more recently learned that the much more much more loving and trusting thing to do is to arrive to someone flawed and unfinished and unperfect and allow yourself to be that vulnerable, fucked up version of yourself and uh, let them see it and then see what happens that you don't expect. 100%. I mean, it, it, it's, you say that because when I met my wife, I was pretty much homeless. I had no money in the bank. I was just, and at, at that time I was so tired of, of life that I just basically, she was this stunning woman who I'd known for, for a while. And I'd, I'd, you know, broken up from a previous relationship, was feeling super heartbroken. And I said, you know, I'd come out of that relationship, not really knowing who I was, because you kind of would change for that person. Um, so when I came out, I didn't know who I was. And I basically just said to her, look, I have no money. I have no home. I, you know, this is me to a T and she was like, oh, that's great. And I was like, holy shit. Like, yeah. I mean, I guess with Julia is a little different. Cause I was like, I have no money. I have a very small home. And she was like, well, I have <laughs> lots of money in a very big home. So come on. <laughs> that's beautiful. Um, that's not exactly what happened. That is a, that is a slight oversimplification. Yes. Um, I want to dive a little bit kind of b before music. Have you always known you wanted to be kind of a musician, a songwriter, an artist, um, what was what was younger JP doing? Well, first I wanted to be a um, I wanted to be a power shovel driver from probably like five to eight. I thought they were really cool. The like giant construction shovels. Yes, that was five to eight. And then eight to 13, I wanted to be a professional baseball player. OK. And then from like 13 to 15, I wanted to be an astronaut. And then from like 15 to 18, I wanted to be a, uh, I wanted to work for NGOs, be a, be a, um, a traveling philanthropist. Um, I guess philanthropist is what you become after you make a lot of money. So not a philanthropist, just, I wanted to, I wanted to work for charities. Um, and then at around 17, 18, I, uh, I decided I wanted to be a professional musician. There we go. That's, I mean, that. Do you know, have you ever touched up on like the multi-dimensions and, and those type of spectrums? I have not touched up on the multi-dimensions. Okay. No. <laughs> so basically, I mean, there's this theory of, you know, if you give a certain amount of energy towards to something. So, for example, um, you, you know, you struggle to get out of bed and there's mm -hmm. put enough energy of, of you staying in bed, but you actually get up. There's another you living the life as in bed and then continuing on. And the only reason why I ask that, because, if, you know, if you put enough energy into something that you want it to be that you want now, there's probably another you that's doing that in a multidimensional version you, of yourself. You're saying there's another me in space? There is millions of you. Imagine the amount of thoughts and feelings and emotions you've had about not doing something or doing something or this or that. How do I tap into them? Can I be them for a sec? Well, I, I actually know people who do. It's like, you know, when you hear about people who... I've always wanted to play the guitar and haven't. And then when they finally pick it up, they can pick it up super quick because there's uh, another version of them playing the guitar. So you're saying if I wanted to be an astronaut, I could actually do it really quickly. Well, I mean, if you put enough energy in wanting to be it previously, then there's probably another you that's on that path of being an astronaut. I spent like two years, 13 to 15, like, dor like dorking out on very little other than space. Then yes, there is another you who's probably an astronaut. Sick. I mean, 
I have maybe tapped into him in some of my music videos because I have I have got a little bit of a space theme going in my music videos. Well, see, there you go. I mean, literally, you can, you know, or even like, for example, if you have a dream and you're in space, that could be you living as yourself. I don't know if you've ever read. Um, are you an avid reader? Avid would be a stretch, but I do read. A casual reader. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know if you've ever read the Seth Speaks books. Mm-mm. You should. I feel like your the way your mind is and the way you approach things that that it's in, it's incredible. You ever heard of um Abraham Hicks? Yes. Yeah. So uh, Seth is the original Abraham. Yeah, Abraham is the is the non existent teacher. Yes. yes, exactly. So Seth is the original one from like the nineteen fifties or something who speaks for a woman and her husband writes down everything that he says and he talks about everything literally multidimensional things religion to a t and it's probably the most intellectually spiritual practical book i think i've ever read cool i'll check it out recently i've been on a real Brene brown tip okay i've been i've been listening to her her podcast quite quite methodically and learning a lot i i go i i'm often like one to two um one to two like teachers outside of my immediate realm at a time mm-hmm but I go through phases. So the Brene Brown phases lasted a really long time because I really love her. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like that's why we're here. We're here to, you know, expand. Yeah. And Esther Perel. Love her too. Okay. Yeah. I've heard of. I'm actually reading a book right now called um, Atomic Habits, hmm. which is kind of breaking bad habits by creating new habits based off of the bad habits. Huh. I think that's something you would enjoy too. Just little things like, um, I don't know, putting at two o'clock, I'm going to do... F- 30 push-ups I, uh, just as an example but constantly doing it so it becomes then a natural thing rather than an unnatural thing mm. or you know if you want to lose weight or gain weight you'd be like what does a person who gains weight do and then you would do the opposite of that um it's actually a pretty pretty good book too um i want to dive in a little bit on like mental health and anxieties and and stuff like that with you um because obviously you're someone who emotes through their music. So, and someone like me, you know, I used to be severely depressed and anxious and to a point now where I talk about everything. So then therefore there's nothing really left in my mind. So my mind can kind of stay quiet most of the time. Um, mm-hmm. How do you, how do you deal with that? How, 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 what's your process? Should I say, I guess everyone's still learning their process. Well, I guess my equivalent of saying everything that is troubling me is the songs although double-edged sword these songs because when something is weighing on you putting it into a song or anything other than yourself can really lighten that burden because now there is something outside of you holding that emotion but the uh the the other side of that is when that emotion is now no longer in you and no longer something you're going through, if that song has made its way out to the world, now the same thing that once took that feeling out of you is now putting it back into you every time you perform it a year later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you, um, how do you decide what, I mean, what song comes next? And, and cause me from, a, obviously I'm not an artist. So, you know, I have artists and it's always like, well, you should do this song because I feel like it would do this. And I feel like I'm always practical in that sense, but I'd love to hear it from, from kind of you as from, from your artistry point of view. I'm thinking about it in terms of painting a picture that feels as holistic as possible. So it's what's the last thing I put out? 
what part of myself that I represent in that last song? What parts of myself do these 10 songs represent? And what feels like the right next thing to say after that? Mm-hmm. And you've, um, I mean, you've done a, uh, some, some amazing collaborations. Um, is, there, is, is there any more on the horizon? Is there someone that you haven't worked with that you'd like to? I would like to work with everyone I'm a fan of. Okay. Um, I think of music very much as a team sport. Um, partly because wins just don't feel nearly as fun when you do them by yourself. Mm-hmm. And also because I'm such a huge fan of music that if I love someone's music and I'm able to get in a room with them and write with them, I get so attached to the songs that I just, I want them to be things we do together. Yeah. Like very, none of my collaborations were meant to be collaborations. Um, You know, writing with Julia wasn't supposed to be a duet. She didn't even think it was a duet the day we wrote it. The only reason if the world was ending ended up being a duet is because I couldn't get the cadence of the second verse right. So she had to come into the booth and show me how to do it. And then I didn't let her leave. So she sang the song. Um, twice she sang the song two times second verse to the end and that's the final vocal um with len and stella we were just writing for her and she asked me to be a part of the song macy peters again writing for her she asked me to sing it with her um maren morris we just got together to write we had no intention of it being a duet so it i imagine it'll happen a bunch more times because it's always exciting when it does. And I like, I like it when music gets to be something I share with someone I'm a fan of. Absolutely. And I think for, for anyone listening who, who kind of wants to do music or songwriting or producing or any of those type of things, um, you know, the, these guys are in the studios all the time and personally, like it's, it's almost, I wouldn't call it speed dating cause it's way more personable than that. But, they're, you know, they're meeting these people, their, their vulnerabilities are there on the line, you know, they're, they're talking about their days, they're talking about their lives, they're talking about everything. And then they kind of come together and write a song. I mean, it's, it's just such a unique process, even just laying it out like that. Um, and I know that's, that's kind of who you are, too. You like to go in there and really, really dive in on who they are, what you're experiencing, you know, everything you're going through and kind of collaborate on that level. Yeah, I mean, when I am writing for other artists um to me it's i don't feel like i have the right to to contribute to a song of theirs until i feel i have an understanding of what their voice is um so until i've listened to them talk for three or four hours to really get a sense of the way they speak the way they think anything that i would give them to sing would feel somewhat contrived would feel somewhat dishonest and when a session is good for me it's it's We've just talked for three, four hours and you've been telling me all kinds of things. And, you know, we weren't even thinking about the song, but then, you know, I'll call back to something you said two hours ago and be like, all right, so that thing you said feels a little bit like a verse. And this thing you just said feels a little bit like a chorus. And maybe that thing you said at the very beginning of the conversation is kind of a pre-chorus. And then it's like, without even realizing that the song is just there because you talked yourself into it. And that's what makes it feel sincere because you weren't trying to think of what to sing. You were literally just speaking. So you you can separate yourself as J.P. Sachs, the artist, from J.P. Sachs, the writer, depending on which situation or room you're going into. I mean, the same way an author has a main character who they often relate to, and then there's other characters in their novel they're able to write that, uh, you know, remind them of different friends in their lives. You just, we're able to write characters other than ourselves. So um, 
to me, writing my own music is my main character because well, it's not a character. It's just me being as myself as I possibly can be in a song. And writing for other people is, is like is like writing a different character. And it's exciting to sort of step into those shoes and and try and speak as authentically to them as possible. Amazing. What um I, I want to dive a little bit on dreams. Um because you know you hear this this kind of notion of you know, I always dream to be a singer and, and, and all these type of things, but I'm like, well, you don't act, do you physically dream that you're going to be a singer or is that just something you aspire to be? Um, another spectrum is when I, um, left Sony ATV, I had, um, you know, you know, you're kind of deciding what you want to do, who you want to be, that, you know, you're, you're on your own, you're figuring out, well, I'm actually in control of my own situation. And I had this, this reoccurring dream where I, I don't like open doors in my house. It's, I, maybe it's a respect thing. Like the door should be closed. Um, and, and I would, and in my dream, I, I lent into the, I guess it's the utility, utility or the, where the laundry, the laundry room is. And the door was open and it was dark and I lent my hand in and something grabbed me and held me. It was just an arm. There was nothing else there. And I was pulling back and I woke up and I was like, okay, you kind of just need to let go of that side of your life and kind of move on. And then all of a sudden, once I did that, opportunity started coming in and everything else. Is there kind of like a predominant dream of yours or, 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 or a, a dream that you can remember that kind of has a big impact kind of in that way? Um, one, that is a wild dream. So wait, <laughs> so was, was the arm in the laundry room Sony ATV? Pretty, I, that, that was my, because I didn't wake up scared. I woke up like, oh, okay, let go. Huh. Kind of like the answer to what I was procrastinating over the last few days of, you know, because, you know, I was doing it for six, six and a half, seven years. You know, I worked with some of the most amazing songwriters you form personal yeah. relationships and then all of a sudden stopped. So uh -huh. like, it was me. What am I going to do now? What am I going to do next? What am I gonna do? All I have to do is let go of that and not not no longer worry about that. And once I let go of that emotionally and physically and mentally. I started getting calls. I started doing things that I never thought I would be doing if I was continually to hold on. So that was kind of my pinnacle moment of the kind of just before lockdown, kind of me trans transforming yeah. my energy into something new. I have dreams quite rarely, but when I do, they're extremely, extremely weird. I had a dream the other day, which I, I was in um, Northern California with a couple of my best friends for a photo shoot. And I woke up and came downstairs. I was like, I have to tell you about my dream because it was super odd. And if I don't tell you about it now, I'm going to forget it. And I, I wonder if I journaled about it or if I just wrote it, if I just told them. Because if I just told them that was a um, that was an ineffective way of remembering that dream. <laughs> I don't think I don't think I wrote it down, but it it was extremely, extremely odd. So when I do have dreams, they're very odd and they make very little sense. I was at a concert, I was at a BTS concert in a half-destroyed coliseum, um, like somewhere in Europe, um, that no one was making any noise. Everyone just had signs to hold up for what they were going to say, which feels like a real-world representation of, like, emoji support on a live stream. Yep. Um, and then the whole thing turned into a giant fish tank but I wasn't a fish. I was a giraffe who was with a family of giraffes. They're always very odd. And then that family 
of giraffes had to escape the zoo. <laughs> and upon escaping the zoo, became dentists with a family dentistry practice, but weren't giraffes anymore, were humans again. But then the dentistry practice was going out of business and they needed to put on a bake sale for the dentistry practice. So <laughs> they're always like, they're not quite as literal or like as um, as interpretable as arm in the laundry room. They're always extremely strange and I never really know what they mean. That sounds like a JP Sachs type of dream. I mean, yeah, I've, never, I've also never dreamed a song. I've been watching interviews with Paul McCartney and he talks about dreaming, you know, Hey Jude or Blackbird. And I'm like, God, I want to dream songs. Never yeah. have. Never once dreamed a song. Well, I mean, that, 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 that's a thing to him. Spiritually speaking, I mean, dreams are there to kind of connect us to the other side, but also to kind of break down the day or break down the emotion, the feelings, all that time, give you signs. I guess your signs are, you know, giraffes <laughs> who become dentists at a BTS concert. Um, that of, then becomes a fish tank that they then have to have a bake sale to save dentistry offices. Which is also, I wonder if that's all my separate, like my separate planes meeting in the middle. Maybe I am both a giraffe, a dentist, a baker, a <laughs> a um, fish, fish. Yes, potentially all in a fish tank in a destroyed coliseum. A fish tank in a destroyed coliseum where a BTS concert is happening, where everyone has emoji signs they hold up instead of clap. Yes. I think that's the, that's the signs of the JP Sachs emotions. You know, it's unique. I mean, you know, but I, have, I, have too. I always have like, I mean, we have those type of dreams, but you know, who is it who used to go to sleep um, on, a, on an equation? Was it Albert Einstein? And then he'd, he'd have these power naps and then he would go to sleep on an equation, wake up and be like, oh, I've got it. Um, same with, you know, I, who was it who someone who came up with a guitar rift of a famous song when they, or what he would do is he would sleep and have the guitar in his, in his hands and press record. And then he came up with this like famous song. I can't remember who it was in his, in his sleep. Yeah. See, you know, my dreams aren't productive like that. My dreams are very convoluted and confusing. I wake up with less clarity, not more. Yeah. But there's a reason why we can't remember our dreams. Cause I, I feel like our waking consciousness, they can't handle it. I mean, the amount of messed up shit we've, we've dreamed, you forget it because we're not supposed to remember it. If we did, I think our minds would explode. I mean, if I had that dream that you had, I think my, in waking consciousness, my mind would explode. Well, I woke up and then went downstairs immediately and had to tell everyone because I was like, I just had the strangest dream of all time. <laughs> but I, 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 yeah, they, they very rarely happen. They're always kind of that weird when they happen. Maybe it's once a month. Well, um, I, I want to dive a little bit onto the kind of spirituality and religion. Um, what's your, what was you raised on, your beliefs, any of that type of stuff? Um, well, my parents are Jewish, yep. um, but not practicing. Uh, I was baptized also as a child. Oh, there we go. Um, Episcopalian by my godmother. What is Episcopalian? I have no idea. <laughs> I was like pescatarian. No, that's something yeah. else. <laughs> uh, and I was also received a papal bless papal blessing, which my mom had framed from John Paul II. Okay. So bases were covered on religion because I had, so like in early so like in the first month of my life I had a bris so. Jewish rituals covered. I had a baptism. 
and I had a papal blessing. So we had three major Western religions bases covered, which I'm not sure if this was my parents' intention, but I, I think it was like some Pai Patel shit. They just wanted me open to whatever lane I chose to um, walk down. Um, and I went with none of them. Um, well, not none of them. I do, I identify with my Judaism in the sense that I'm very proud of my Jewish lineage. Um, and I'm very proud of what my family overcame because of their Judaism. So, and I also feel like not, not embodying that would feel disrespectful to the members of my, my very close relatives not very long ago who were killed in the Holocaust mm -hmm. because they were Jewish. Um, but I mean, I haven't been to synagogue in a, since I was 13 years old in bar mitzvah. I went to church a couple of times early in Los, my time in Los Angeles, but mostly because I was lonely. Um, and people in, and people at the church I went to in Los Angeles were quite friendly, but it was only like three or four times. And one time on, uh, I think this was New Year's Eve, maybe 2015, 2016, I went to this big church in Los Angeles and met someone who asked me if I wanted to spend the night uh, handing out hamburgers to the homeless. And um, I was like, all right. So I got in her car. We got like 100 Big Macs. And then she proceeded to follow Jesus's direction. Like literally Jesus take the wheel. Yeah. Like she go, yep. Jesus says turns left. There's people who need us over here. Jesus says park here. Jesus says go down this alley. And then we hand, handed out hamburgers. Um, That's amazing. Like she literally was just going off instinct. Well, she wouldn't say instinct. She would, she would say Jesus's instruction. So he would see, she would say, oh, Jesus told me to turn left. That is what she was saying. Wow. Um, and then often a lot of my closest friends have been quite religious Christians. Um, I throughout high school, as I said, remember 15 to 18, I really wanted to work in charities. And there were a lot of really, really beautiful humans I met in that part of my life who have a really stunning relationship with their Christianity. Um, one of whom moved to Uganda and spent the last six years living in, in northern Uganda and adopted a child there. And I mean, that his relationship with Jesus is is so so moving to me. So long-winded answer to um, I found a lot of beauty in a lot of different angles of different religions that I have delved into at different times of my life. Yeah, I'm the same. I mean, I'm literally, I just finished um, some texts on Buddhism, which I love the practicality of it. Uh, it's a very mental type of, it's not even a religion, sorry. It's, just, it's more of a, just a, a something that is. Um, I'm actually reading solely the teachings of Jesus. Like nothing, nothing else is in there. No other opinions. It's literally the words of Jesus, which I found quite fascinating. Uh, my next one will be, I guess, it, you know, Islam and a bunch of others, just because I, I feel like I don't know enough about them, but I feel like they all touch upon the same things or should usually touch upon the same things. Um, I guess, I guess this brings me up to my next point is, um, I guess, thoughts on life after death. Do you have any, you know, reflections on them or any thoughts or fears or any of that type of stuff um and the reason why i'm asking this is because the I, I i'm at a point now where awareness for me is everything and the more i've become aware of everything the less i know about anything like i really don't know shit about shit but it also makes me feel like i'm comfortable with that 
because I don't know. Yeah, I think I don't know is a pretty like mystically powerful thing to just like really take comfort in. Mm-hmm. I'm a I'm a big fan of uh, of accepting the answers that we just couldn't possibly have. I think um, to me, answers are very limiting things. Questions are full of possibilities. But once we decide something is something, uh, it's the, a bunch of doors close. So um, it's it's why um, I'm. St- I mean, it's probably the most the, the most Jewish thing I could say is is my enthusiasm about questions. It's one of the things I love about Judaism. It's so it's so um, supportive of questions. At least in my family, like at Passover dinners, it it was always encouraging the kids to be asking things. Um, but uh, I mean, I've found. I found anytime I've I've dove into learning about a religion, I've been entirely fascinated and some element of it has found its way ingrained into the way I think and live. You know, I, I don't remember the name of the book, but I, I read um, a few years ago a book on Muhammad that was just about his life. Um, I was so moved. Um, and then, you know, being 17 year, years old, like in India the first time and learning about Jainism, also extremely moved. Um, but it, was, it wasn't so much about like the answers in the religions. It was more about the questions they were asking that I think stuck with me. So thoughts on death. I actually think about death extremely little. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't seem, and maybe this is because I'm 27 years old and this will change when I'm older, but even seeing people close to me die, I didn't really ponder where they were going. Um, I I think uh, life is a pretty magical, mystical, uncomprehensible thing um, without me having to figure out anything outside of it, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yeah, that's a very Buddhist approach. <laughs> no, yeah. it really is. Yeah, they're literally, it is that they, they kind of, you know, I think there's there's so much going on with what we're doing now that they don't really question what's after this. They almost have a knowing of it. Um, cause I've had a ton of NDE. I find it, I find it fascinating. The whole, the whole, you know, the magical approach of the universe and it is, it's magic. You know, um, I'm not from a magical background at all. I'm from a, you know, hard work magical background. I mean, someone, I, I, I don't know what I'm at. You know, I, I'm a pretty practically spiritual <laughs> guy in terms of, I know the power that I have within me mm-hmm. to, to, to control the outside aspects of my life just by the way I feel and think and, all that type of stuff. Um, a magical approach would be, I guess, someone who is, uh, you know, I never was aware of awareness when I was younger that I kind of had to develop that or learn that. I guess that comes with maturity anyway. But there's still some people who don't mature and aren't aware of anything. The fact that they're even living or breathing or, you know, an actual billion gazillion cells that are each kind of doing their own thing within your body. Um, and the reason why I asked the life after death thing, because I guess practically, you know, scientifically, you know, our, our bodies have died so many times before. And we've regenerated and everything else. And with the NDEs and stuff, I find it super interesting because every single NDE is very, is different. There's never one that is the same one. They all practically touch upon the same thing. You know, there's a light or this or whatever. But I, 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 yeah, now those, those type of questions, used to, I used to be scared of them. And now I don't, I'm, I'm not scared of them because you can't really be scared of something you don't know. But for yeah. those who listen who are, I mean, there's so much evidence out there just to, you know, as you said, questions upon questions, which I think is the beautiful thing. 
Yeah. I mean, I've recently started watching that near-death experience special on YouTube, on Netflix. I've seen that. I finished that. Um, I didn't get all the way through. You should, um, um, you should watch the, I think it's episode five on the reincarnational kids. No, I have not seen that. You should, it's, it's, it's on the surviving, is it surviving death you're talking about, right? That's what it's called. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, I mean, for the, I won't, I don't want to ruin it for you, but it's, it's amazing. Like these young kids just know exactly who they were before. And a, a guy basically just, you know, questions them on it presents them with a ton of photos and they just have to pick the ones that resonates with them. And they're like, yep, that's my previous mom. Yep. That's my previous dad. That's the park I used to play in this, 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 or like I used to be a fighter pilot. This is where I went down. This is where, you know, ask so-and-so from, you know, private so-and-so from, you know, which regiment he knows me. And you're like, what is going on? And these kids are like three years old. Yeah. That's pretty unbelievable. Um, I think I was, I'm very grateful that my parents never prioritized any sort of concrete answers to things as a part of my upbringing. Um, because I've definitely seen people around me who were brought up with that sort of concrete answer to things. If they don't live their life in accordance with the answers that they were first taught, it's very hard to replace concrete, concrete thoughts in your upbringing with um, intangible ones later on. I think I've so often seen people in my community when they're trying to, you know, maybe unlearn something they were taught, they're looking for an answer to replace it with, um, which I think just gets uh, even more complicated. Yeah. Because answers are flawed and, uh, and questions and like questions without the desire for an answer to them is an exciting place to live. I find that very freeing and peaceful. Um, but we also live these lives, Lou, which I'm, I'm, I'm sure we share a gratitude in where there aren't too many practical things missing in our world that we have to dedicate large amounts of time to clean water or feeding ourselves or housing ourselves. So uh, we, we get to be, we get to be, um, troubled with our concept of identity and our concept of belief and after death and all of that. And, um, I think it can be, uh, it, it can be, um, a struggle of abundance to be so overwhelmed by trying to figure out the meaning of things because so much of the meaning that we would have found in just being able to sustain ourselves because it came so easy, we're uh, we're looking for much more complicated things for fulfillment than we would if we were just, uh, you know, had to feed our kids and ourselves and house ourselves. And then we were like, yes, my life is purposeful because we are living and I'm happy. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a, such a beautiful perspective. Um, it's true. I mean, you know, the key to happiness for me is appreciation on a, on a macro level, which you are talking about. You know, I have you know, my fridge full of food, I have water, I have all these things that I don't have to, to kind of worry about. And that keeps me on a, on a resonance level of appreciation, which then feeds into my happiness. So when something bad comes in, I can knock it off and being like, well, look at everything around me that I have, you know, and what can I do to help? Yeah, well, I think, like, to me, like, joy comes from, in my opinion, solving problems. Yeah, like, 
to me, a feeling of purpose comes from solving problems, comes from overcoming things. So when you have your uh, your more basic overcomable things already covered, you got to get you got to get a little bit more uh, complicated with the things that you need to overcome. And and then if you're not overcoming them or you're not finding solutions to those problems, uh, you feel like something's wrong, like something's missing, or like something's wrong with you. Something's missing in you. <laughs> and uh, that that's that's tricky. I, I think. Uh, it's tricky. It's a slippery slope of like sounding like a total prick talking about that. But um, <laughs> I do think uh, the more complicated, the more nuanced the problems we expect ourselves to overcome, the harder it is to feel like we're doing something worthwhile. There we go. J- JP Sachs, the motivational speaker. Yeah, I mean, I've read a couple books. <laughs> Last question. I won't, I won't leave it taking up too much more time, uh, more of your time, but. How do you, I mean, I want to know this from you. Um, how do you vision love? How do I envision love? Uh, what I, feel kind like of love? I feel like you're the perfect person to kind of analyze this. See, I'm going to argue with you there. Because I think often songwriters are looked at as people who are supposed to be like pillars oh, of what it means. No, to no, no, no. Not songwriters, JP. I'm talking about <laughs> you. I am better at, uh, okay, well. How do I envision love? Yes. Well, right now, it's a um, a really beautiful um, 27-year-old brunette named Julia, who um, who is more selfless and endearing than anyone I've ever known, who uh, I find I find love in different parts of myself just by seeing her exist on a regular basis. There we go. I get, see, um, to be honest, a ton of people struggle to, with, the, with that question. And I have struggled with it before. But I think I feel like this, this whole, you know, we romanticize love from movies or from conditioning or from our parents or any other type of stuff. But I mean, for me, like, like I, I work with my wife. I, you know, I, we've been locked down uh, for, you know, a year and a half, however long I can't even remember. And it's been the best time of my life. Like, you know, because I don't think it's necessarily the pressure of, you know, you know, that first year of relationship is like sheer bliss. And then after that first year, there's a couple cracks that show maybe some jealousy comes in, maybe some bullshit that shouldn't even be there. And you go through those kind of stages. And then once you kind of just accept that that person's your lifelong partner and your best friend and someone you want to spend time with, um, it's someone you love deeply about, you know, you watch sad movies and cry with. Like for me, that, that, that's how I vision my love, you know, not as a romanticized notion of a movie or any, even though I love romanticized movies mm-hmm. um i think the love comes in lieu when shit starts going the way you didn't envision it yeah okay to me like the love is easy when it's uh when it's on the track it's when uh it's when all the stuff starts happening that you couldn't have imagined happening where you actually get to see what love feels like in my experience 100 percent, um, and i've had many all, derailments yeah it's the derailments that i think the love lives in because people are it's really easy to love someone when everything is just going swell you know that that shit's the easy part and i I feel like you can make it work with plenty of people when it's uh problem free you know if it's just about like cuddling and ordering takeout and watching fun movies together like probably do that with a fuck ton of people but uh the derailments the shit you don't expect to happen the um the just unimaginable turns in life that you're like, all right, are we going to turn together? 
to me, that's when that's when the love really shows up. That's when it comes in. That's when it gets real. Ah, there we go. I tell you, this has been amazing, JP. You're a beautiful human. Keep keep making beautiful music. Congratulations on the Grammy nomination. Thanks. Um, you you asked me some things here that I don't think have happened in any of my interviews, and I also don't. I also think there's a large part of my family that doesn't even know I was baptized. So let's hope they're not paying too. Much. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to purposely create this as, as an asset and be like, you know, <laughs> Reverend Sachs. <laughs>